How shall young man cleanse his way? By taking heed thereto according to thy word. Thy word have I hid in my heart, that I might not sin against thee. Thy word is a lamp unto my feet, and a light unto my path. Jesus prayed to the Father, Sanctify them in truth. Thy word is truth. For the grass withers and the flower fades, but the word of our God shall stand forever. Before we get started, well, let's have a few moments of silent prayer so we can make sure we're in fellowship and ready to study the word, and then I will open in prayer. Let's pray. Our Father, we are so very grateful for all that you've given us, all that you provided for us. We know that you have a plan, that that plan extends throughout all of human history and on into the future. And as a centerpiece of your plan, you have the plan of salvation for the human race that centers upon our volition in relation to uh, your commands. Initially, the command not to eat from the fruit of the tree of the knowledge of good and evil, and then your plan of salvation to redeem us from sin as a result of failure of the first of the first test. And yet, overall, this plan is your plan. Your sovereignty is in control. Yet, within the realm of your sovereignty, you have also you also work with our independent, individual uh, free will, our volition. How that works is often difficult to understand, and tonight we're at the center of one of the passages that is very difficult for some people to comprehend and put together in terms of uh, the two issues of your sovereign will and our volition, yet tonight we pray that you might help us to gain a little more insight and appreciation into that, that those truths and how they work together. We pray this in Christ's name, amen. We are in Romans chapter 9, Romans chapter 9. And tonight we get into one of those great little uh, tough conundrums on the hardening of Pharaoh's heart. So hopefully tonight I will be able to shed a little light and not too much darkness on understanding how uh, God's sovereign sovereignty works in terms of human human history. And we'll specifically be looking at, at Romans nine seventeen to 24, but we'll start with a little review because it's important to understand the context. Context is one of the most important aspects of biblical interpretation. It's often easy when we're in, uh, we walk up into a conversation, interrupt in the middle of a conversation between two people, or we just overhear a conversation, that we misunderstand what someone might be saying simply because we haven't heard the whole conversation. We don't know uh, precisely what they're discussing or uh, what they're saying, and, and I've had situations where I was quoting somebody, and I had somebody walk up and think that what I was saying was expressing my opinion instead of the fact that I was quoting somebody else. So context is very important in order to understand uh, anything that we hear or anything that we read. It's it's the literary version of the <clears throat> real estate adage of location, location, location. We have to understand what the context is, and context affects words a lot. Uh, how, what a word means is often more determined by its context than just simply going to the dictionary. Often we think of certain words having certain set meanings, but those meanings can can change 
are varied just according to context. In a broad sense, you have some words that are used in poetry, and they're, they have a broader use. Often they have more of a figure of speech use than if they're used in technical, legal, or historical literature. So context is important. And one way uh, <clears throat> that we often misinterpret Scripture We'll get into this quite a bit in our study of Matthew, I think. But one of the ways we often have see people misinterpret Scripture is they miss they don't understand the audience, and so they think that what is being said has something to do with justification or salvation rather than sanctification. And many times in the Gospels, when Jesus uh, gives various uh, commands related to uh, sanctification, such as take up your cross daily and follow me, people have taken that to refer to something related to salvation rather than sanctification. Uh, but it's very clear from passages uh, in Scripture, like Ephesians 2.89, that we're not saved by works, by doing these things. The mandates in the Scripture related to um, uh, related to discipleship are not related to becoming saved. A di- becoming a disciple wasn't the same thing as becoming saved. So Ephesians 2, 8, 9, we're saved by grace through faith and not of ourselves, not of works, lest any man should boast. Titus 3, 5 says it's not by works of righteousness, which we have done, but according to his mercy, he saved us by the washing of regeneration and renewing of the Holy Spirit. So when we look at passages like that, we see that salvation is by grace through faith. Works are not involved, just completely excluded in those passages. But then you look at those passages, and another thing that's important to see is the word saved is used there in those passages to relate to phase one salvation, justification, for by grace you have been saved. Um, not by works. Uh, Titus 3, 5, it's not by works of righteousness, which we have done, but according to his mercy, he saved us. So the word saved or salvation in those contexts relates to getting or acquiring eternal life. However, when you get into Romans, the technical term that Paul uses for phase one is justification. When we enter into acquire eternal life, that is justification. When we receive the imputation of Christ's righteousness. In Romans, most of the time, salvation and the word group related to the Greek word sozo has to do with either uh, sanctification or, in certain cases, physical deliverance. But it doesn't have, there's no place in Romans where the word group for sozo relates to justification. So you have to pay attention to to context if you take the word, uh, that word group, in Romans for saved and try to assign to it the same meaning you have in Ephesians 2.89, then you're going to go off track in terms of interpreting a particular passage. In a similar way, it's easy to not only impose a a word meaning from one passage onto another passage, but it's wrong to take a theological system and read it into the text. And this often happens in Romans 9, as I've pointed out. When we first started with Romans 9, I spent quite a bit of time 
talking about replacement theology and covenant theology because they come with an assumption, a presupposition, that Israel has been completely, totally set aside by God and his plan. And if they're really into full covenant theology, they're either amillennial or postmillennial, so they don't believe in a future literal messianic kingdom. And this influences their interpretation of Romans 9. So Romans 9 for them is not something that is talking about God's plan for Israel as a nation. They often interpret the term Israel as referring to a spiritual Israel, that the church is now spiritual Israel, and ultimately everything gets reduced in covenant theology to something related to soteriology. This is part of their scope for how they interpret history, that history is the history of redemption and the working out of God's covenant of grace. And so everything gets organized around this principle of salvation, and so they're reading salvation into the context. But as I pointed out last week as we get into the context of Romans 9, Romans 9 is not a defense of God's sovereignty in electing or choosing some people for salvation and sending other people to eternal, eternal condemnation. Justification salvation isn't anywhere in this context. It's talking about God's choice of Israel and the descendants of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob for a specific purpose in history, and that it is through Abraham, on the basis of the Abrahamic covenant, that God's going to bless all of the nations. So the focus is not on individuals, individual salvation, neither is is it on the focus on individuals, as we saw with the passage dealing with uh, uh, Esau and Jacob in verse 13, Jacob I've loved, but Esau I've hated, we saw that that's not talking about those individual as individuals, but that they represented nations, even as God had indicated that uh, in the original passage in <clears throat> Genesis. So with that in mind, we got into the next section dealing with uh, this question that is raised as we talk about the sovereignty of God and his decisions in human history that someone might object to and say, well, is there unrighteousness in God? And Paul's response at the end of verse 19, uh, at the end of verse 14 is, is a very strong denial in the Greek, meganoito, which means, you know, no, not at all. Absolutely not. And then he gives two illustrations of God's right to choose how he will con- oversee history. That's the focal point here, how God is going to work out his plan for Israel in history. That's been the context up through verse 13. It's still the context. It doesn't change. So when we get down into uh, some of these more difficult passages, such as the reference to the potter and the clay in verse 21, again, it's not discussing God's choice or selection of some people for salvation and some people for eternal condemnation. That's not in the passage anywhere. It it doesn't fit the context. Now, last time we looked at uh, Romans 9.15, 
where Paul illustrates with his first example from history, from Exodus, and the birth of the Jewish nation. The birth of the Jewish people begins with Abraham in Genesis chapter 12. The birth of the Jewish people begins in the Exodus event as he redeems them from slavery in Egypt. In Romans 9.15, he says to, God says to Moses, I will have mercy on whomever I will have mercy, and I will have compassion on whomever I will have compassion. Now, if we just take that out of context, it looks like God, Paul is saying God can just willy-nilly, arbitrarily select who he's going to be good to and who he's going to uh, have judgment on. And that just is, depends upon God's arbitrary will. But last time I showed that if we look at the context of that statement back in Exodus, because it's a quote from the uh, second half of Exodus 33.19, we discovered that it's a very important context. I just want to remind you of that so that we can take that reminder, because this is, this is not the easy stuff of Scripture. This is the, the uh, stake, the really, really... Uh, uh, meatier parts of Scripture and hard for some people to uh, understand and comprehend. And, and often the way words are translated into English, the English words chosen have been used traditionally since the uh, time of the Reformation, and they've sort of front-loaded our theology a little bit. They may not be the best words to use, so we have to work our way through this. So in Exodus 33, what we saw that the context here was when Moses and Aaron are, I mean, Moses and Joshua are up on the mountain. Moses is up with the Lord getting the, uh, uh, getting the tablets of the law. And they hear the sound of a party, some sort of celebration going on down below where the people are. And what's happened is they've enticed, uh, Aaron into making a, an idol, a golden calf, and they're worshiping the golden calf and basically having an orgy. And God threatens to completely destroy and wipe out all of the Israelites except for Moses and raise up a new nation through Moses. And so this is really a test of Moses, just as God has tested Abraham, God has tested Job, to see if, Job, if, if, if Moses is truly humble and if Moses really understands God's plan. And Moses does. He passes the test with flying colors, and he intercedes for the nation. And he intercedes by arguing a couple of different ways, as we saw last time. One of those ways was, God, this is, this is bad for your reputation. And number two, this is violating the covenant that you made with Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. So on that basis, don't destroy the people. And so God uh, relents. He's not going to destroy the people. And, and as a result of that, uh, though God is still going to bring divine discipline, there has to be consequences for sin in this situation, and so there's judgment upon uh, those rebels in the camp that is brought about by Moses and the Levites, as we studied last time. And part of the consequences of that, though, is that God is going to come along, and he is going to uh, remove himself from their midst, as we saw in Exodus 33.5. The Lord said to Moses, Say to the children of Israel, Your stiff-necked people, I come up into your midst in one moment and consume you. God in his righteousness 
would bring judgment on the whole nation. So God says that he's going to remove himself uh, from their presence and not lead them. Well, at this point, Moses is continues to intercede with them. Moses is concerned about the people. This is seen in the plural pronouns that are used there when Moses talks to God. And Moses, I mean, and God, on the other hand, is speaking to how he's going to bless uh, Moses. And so Moses asks for God in verse 13, If I found grace in your sight, show me now your way, that I may know you and that I may find grace in your sight and consider that this nation is your people. In other words, he's asking God to relent even of this complete removal from the people to demonstrate by his presence that these people are indeed God's chosen people and God has selected them for his purpose in history. And so God says to uh, Moses, my presence will go with you but not in the way it would have before. There are, there's a consequence for their rebellion, and so God's going to scale it back, and his presence will go in terms of just being in the, in the temple and just leading them uh, in front through the, pillar of, uh, through the cloud and the pillar of fire. So God says, my presence will go with you all, and I will give you rest. So he's going to give a blessing here, an additional grace blessing, and show favor to Moses. And the response to that is from from um, Moses is if your presence does not go with us, do not bring us up from here. So Moses is continuing to plead that God needs to be, his presence needs to be with the people. And his reason is given in verse 16, for how then will it be known that your people and I have found grace in your sight if you don't go with us? So we shall be separate, your people. And verse 18, um, he, he pleads to God to show him his glory. And God's response, that's the verse we're looking at here, is it says, I will make, God says, I will make all my goodness pass before you, singular. He's going to give this special blessing where, notice, God in his, in his, I, as an individual, God the Father is not re- showing himself to Moses. He is showing his glory to Moses. And he's going to pass by. This is uh, uh, something, a blessing that is restricted only to, only to Moses. And so the promise that God says uh, makes at the end of the verse that I will be, or the statement that He makes that I will be gracious to whom I will be gracious, and I will have compassion on whom I will have compassion, is basically a statement where God is saying to Moses, "I have a plan. That plan will be executed." the way I want to execute it, and the time I want to execute it, and the way I want to execute it. Your idea of how it should be executed isn't going to work. I'm going to do it my way. I have the right to reserve that in how I will do that, and I choose how I am going to display myself, and I'm going to choose to be gracious to you and and pass before you and reveal myself to you, not to all the people in in this particular way. And so the point that we see here is that God is the one who reserves the right to determine uh, what he does and how he does it, the right to display the, his grace when, uh, where, and how he sees fit. So he reserves that right. But he's not talking about individual salvation. Moses is already saved. Uh, this has nothing to do with salvation, but how God is going to display his grace in terms of his plan for Israel. 
So what we see here in just sort of a summary, first of all, the issue it did not involve individuals, but the role of the nation. Uh, no one's, little typo there, no one's eternal salvation was at stake. It's not talking about individual justification. Second thing, what was at stake was the destiny of Israel and God's plan and purpose for the nation and how God was going to manifest his blessing for the nation. What we see Paul doing under point number three is that Paul is arguing that God's plan for Israel would not be shaped by what Moses wanted, but by God's omniscient will. Wouldn't be shaped by what Moses wanted, but by God's omniscient will. It's not just God's sovereignty. What happens in Calvinism is everything gets washed through the grid of God's sovereignty. But we know from passages like 1 Peter 1, 2, that uh, we're elect according to the foreknowledge of God. God's omniscience plays a role in the decisions that he makes, and part of his omniscience involves an understanding of our volition and the fact that he knows all of the knowable and everything that can possibly take place, and he makes his plan accordingly. Fourth point, then in the same way, now this is our transition to our passage tonight, then in the same way Paul uses the example of Pharaoh to show that God's plan for Israel was not to be shaped by the opposition of Pharaoh, but by God's plan. So on the one hand, he's showing Moses, who's good, Moses, who walks with the Lord, Moses, who gets this intimate blessing from the Lord, doesn't shape God's plan. It's not by uh, <clears throat> based on his decision and his will. It's verse 16, not, so that it's not of him who wills, nor of him who runs, but of God who shows mercy. Uh, neither it is, it, it, is it on the negative side, neither does that apply on the negative side to Pharaoh. And so we're going to look at this illustration from Pharaoh. So Paul is not saying in this passage, as we get into it, Paul is not saying, as some suggest, that God can do whatever he likes and that uh, whether it's going to be saving some or condemning others, uh, since everyone deserves hell anyway. That's sort of the uh, Calvinistic, deterministic interpretation of the passage, that God just has the right to do whatever he wants to. Uh, Paul is saying something like this. Let me sort of paraphrase this whole discussion. Certainly there is no unrighteousness with God. Moses found it difficult to see that the Lord was acting to judge, why the Lord was acting to judge Israel the way he did. And he pleaded with God to show grace to Israel. The Lord's response was that only he knew the best way to distribute his grace to Israel. Moses' ideas were not the issue. Moses' behavior was not the issue because Moses didn't know all the details. Only God knew all the facts and what the overall strategy needed to be. Paul is saying that if one objects to the way that God is dealing with Israel in history in terms of their rejection of the Messiah, this only shows a misunderstanding of the principles on which God works. God's dealings with Israel at the time of the Exodus were not determined by Israel's merits or holiness, for they were quite disobedient. God blessed them according to his own uh, plan and his own character. 
Even Moses' own righteousness did not enable him to direct God's plan. God worked out his plan on the basis of his own omniscience, his own righteousness, his own justice, and his sovereign authority. So this is why we read in verse 15 that uh, God says to Moses, I will have mercy on whomever I will have mercy, and I will have compassion on whomever I will have compassion. That relates to the demonstration of God's uh, grace in terms of his plan and purposes for Israel. Now, in Romans 9.15, or 9.16, he says, So it's, then it's not of him who wills, nor of him who runs, but of God who shows mercy. Now, when we get into this next section, starting in verse 17, the focus is going to be on Pharaoh. For the Scripture says to the Pharaoh, For this very purpose I've raised you up, that I may show my power in you, and that my name may be declared in all the earth. Now, it's easy to see why people would read into this some sort of salvation determination, that God is just predetermining what Pharaoh's salvation is, but salvation isn't entering into the passage at all. A couple of things we have to remember as we start in on this. First of all, Pharaoh is already immersed in idolatry. He has already chosen to believe completely and immerse himself in the entire idolatrous system of Egypt. Now, what is Paul? how does Paul describe this whole mechanic of getting involved in idolatry? We go back to Romans chapter 1. Let's just think about this in terms of the Pharaoh. Since the creation of the world, God's invisible attributes are clearly seen, being understood by the things that are made, even his eternal power and Godhead, so that they are without excuse. The Pharaoh has clearly seen God's invisible attributes so that he is without excuse. Because although the Pharaoh, let's just put the Pharaoh in here to understand it, because although the Pharaoh knew God, he did not glorify him as God, nor was he thankful, but he became futile in his thoughts and his foolish heart was darkened. See, that's what's happening with unbelievers. So he's darkening his heart. It's getting locked into negative volition because he's rejected God, and in the place of God, he's worshiping the creature rather than the creator. Romans one twenty two goes on to say, professing to be wise, he became a fool, and he exchanged the glory of the incorruptible God for an image made like corruptible man and the birds and four-footed animals and creeping things. This is what this description in Romans 1, we've gone through many times, it describes the introduction of idolatry into human history, but specifically it can be applied to what's happened in, in terms of Pharaoh's own personal relationship to God. He's rejected God. He's worshiping the creation. Therefore, as a result, God gave them up to uncleanness. God allows them to follow the the determination of their own volition. They have chosen to reject God and to follow the path of idolatry, so God releases them to continue to go in that direction. So when uh, we get to the uh, passage related to Pharaoh, uh, we see that this is simply a an expression of the fact that God has is just intensifying a decision and he's uh, sort of uh, 
uh, strengthening Pharaoh in his conviction on that decision, uh, but it's a decision that Pharaoh has already come to on his own. God is not making him reject God. God is not forcing his will against God. God is just strengthening a decision that Pharaoh has already already made on his own. So when we look at the passage in Romans 9.17, we see that it is a quotation from Exodus 9.16, which states but where God is speaking to Moses, said, uh, <coughs> uh, God is speaking to Pharaoh, saying, but indeed for this purpose I have raised you up, that I may show my power in you, and that my name may be declared in all the earth. Still isn't a statement related to his individual soteriological condition. In the context of Exodus 9 is the seventh plague. Now let's just flip back to Exodus, and if you're back in Exodus chapter 9, we can look at a couple of other passages as we talk about all these hardening passages. One of the problems we have is the word that is chosen traditionally, probably going back to William Tyndale. So much of the language that's used even in the King James Version is it was originally language that was chosen by Tyndale in his translation of the um, of the Old Testament and New Testament uh, early in on earlier on in the sixteenth century. And these words, some of these words have become very much um, uh, solidified in English translation so that despite uh, later developments in our understanding of language, it's difficult to change the translations. Transla- unfortunately, translating the Bible and selling Bible translations has become a business. And I know that uh, that I had a professor at, uh, at Dallas Seminary, a Hebrew professor who was very much involved in the New International Version, and the translation of the New International Version is not one that I'm real fond of, and often I refer to it as a more of a commentary than it is a translation. But he used to comment several times that as they would meet in committee and each person was assigned a text to translate and then they would come back and they would uh, uh, argue and debate the translation until they were finded, then it would go to a couple of other committees, and finally that that it would be, uh, the final reading would be determined. He would often say, you know, this translation is, is the word of God by a vote of five to four. Many times that ought to go in the margins. And unfortunately, because a, there's a tradition of translating these passages as hardening Pharaoh's heart, that that translation is stuck, and that's how we find it. That's become the traditional way, but that's not the best way to translate this language. Anyway, as we look at Romans 9.16, I want you to notice the next verse. As God is indicting Pharaoh, he says in verse 17, As yet you exalt yourself against my people in that you will not let them go. See, if God has subverted Pharaoh's individual volition, and God is making him do it, how can God turn around and say, 
this is your fault. You've made this decision. You're the one who uh, refuses to let my people go. And so the fact that God says this in verse 17 is a big insight into the fact that it is ultimately Pharaoh who is making this decision. He is uh, hostile to, um, to God's people, hostile to Israel. So as we look at verses like, like the, all these hardening of heart verses, it's easy to see how the Calvinist or the determinist interpretation of the hardening is arrived at. But we need to observe other passages of Scripture. Number one, Pharaoh, based on Romans 1, and supported by passages like Romans, I mean, like Exodus 9.17 that I just read, indicates that Pharaoh has already set his will in a direction hostile to God and to God's people Israel. Pharaoh's already made that decision before God does anything. Second, in God's commission to Moses in Exodus chapter 3, God states that he knows that, that uh, Pharaoh will not let his people go. In Exodus 3.19, God says to Moses, but I am sure that the king of Egypt will not let you go. Uh, no, not even by a mighty hand. So God in his omniscience knows that Pharaoh has already made a decision and he's already set his heart and he's not going to let uh, his entire workforce basically leave the country. So third, the issue in the Romans argument, and if we look at the context, is that neither Moses nor Pharaoh, neither Moses in his righteousness or Pharaoh in his obstinacy have the right to set God's agenda for how he is going to deal with his people. God's plan for Israel is determined by God's sovereignty. It's not a plan related to individual justification. The fourth point we see is that Pharaoh's hardened heart is related to his own personal animosity and hostility toward the Israelites. It's based on his own volition. Now, the fifth point, I want to look at the fact that there are actually three different words that are used in Hebrew that are translated as hardened. Three different words, and it's important to look at these words. The first word and the most common word that is used is the Hebrew word chazak, C-H-A-Z-A-Q. Uh, without the vowel points, it's just C-H-Z-Q. It's in the P-L, which is an intensified stem. Chazak means to be strong or to become strong, to strengthen, to prevail, uh, to harden, to be courageous, or to be uh, severe, sore in the sense of being severe, sore from the old uh, King James to be severe or hard on people. Other than the hardening passages, and these hardening passages, Hazak is almost always translated as God hardening Pharaoh's heart, or Pharaoh's heart was hardened. Other than that, the most common translation for this word has to do with strengthening or encouraging or urging someone. 
Now, I didn't put this verse up on the screen, but if you're in Exodus 9, I want you to turn over a couple of pages to Exodus 12, and I want to show you an example of this. In Exodus chapter 12, verse 33, we have the same use, a similar use of the word chazak. And uh, let me start reading in verse 31. Then he called, this is the Pharaoh, then he called for Moses and Aaron by night and said, Rise, go up from among the people, both you and the children of Israel, and go, serve the Lord as you have said. Also take your flocks and your herds as you have said, and be gone, and and bless me also. So this is uh, uh, after the death of the firstborn, when Pharaoh is finally saying, just leave, get out of the kingdom, leave Egypt. And not only does Pharaoh tell him to go, but read verse 33. And the Egyptian urged the people, chazak. It's translated to urge or encourage the people to go, not harden them. It means to encourage. Now, if you were to take all these passages where God hardened Pharaoh's heart, God encouraged Pharaoh's heart, God urged Pharaoh's heart. So you get a totally different sense of what those verses are talking about. It's not that he is fixing or or locking in Pharaoh's volition. He is strengthening it, something that's already been decided. He's urging, he's encouraging him to continue in a course of action he's already set his heart on. So Exodus... uh, uh, 12.33 gives us a good look at that word in a similar context right where we are in, in Exodus. So that makes a lot of, of sense. So we look at other passages like Exodus 4.21. And the Lord said to Moses, when you go back to Egypt, see that you do all those wonders before Pharaoh, which I have put in your hand, but I will strengthen his heart. I, instead of harden, I will strengthen his heart so that he will not let his people go. Uh, and then uh, Exodus 7.13, and Pharaoh's heart was strengthened uh, or became stubborn. He became obstinate. Uh, we have that same kind of idiom in English. It doesn't mean that somebody's making him that way. He just became obstinate. Uh, or, uh, and he did not heed them or he uh, strengthened himself. So these are the ideas that we have as we go through the use of there. Thirteen times that this word is used in relation to uh, the the hardening or the encouraging or strengthening of Pharaoh's heart. Now, the next word that is used, chavad, is a word instant that literally means uh, to be heavy or to be severe. It is a word in a noun, another noun form, chavad, which means. Uh, glory, so that the glory of God. Uh, and this has to do with the, the, the seriousness, the significance, the heaviness, the weightiness of something. But its literal meaning is something that is heavy, something harsh, something that is difficult. Choose one time in relationship where it's translated Pharaoh's uh, related uh, as a noun related to Pharaoh's heart. It's used six times as a verb. In Exodus seven fourteen, the Lord said to Moses, Pharaoh's heart is hard. It's it's heavy. It's severe. It's uh, focused in a negative way. Might be another way to translate that. It's used six times, where it's translated as the hardening of Pharaoh's heart. Pharaoh hardened his heart in Exodus eight thirty two. Then Pharaoh sent um, 
then the heart of Pharaoh became hard in Exodus 9, 7, and three or four other verses. But there are six verses where it's translated, uh, where, where the word is kaved, uh, and or kavad, which is the verb. And then the third use is uh, kasha, which is in the hifil, which is a causative stem in the Hebrew to make something hard. And it's used um, two times uh, in relation to this. In Exodus 7.3, God says, I will uh, harden Pharaoh's heart and multiply my signs and wonders in the land of Egypt. And in Exodus 13.15, it came to pass, and it's translated stubborn there, when Pharaoh was stubborn about letting us go, the Lord killed all the firstborn in the land of Egypt. So that's interesting that in that one passage it's translated as, as stubborn, indicating his volition. So what's the bottom line in, in all of this? Uh, when we look at the passage and the overall view of Scripture, we see that, that Pharaoh, uh, as an idolater, had already made a decision against God. At the point of God consciousness, he had rejected God, and he had become more and more immersed into the idolatry of the of the uh, Egyptian religious system. Uh, he made a decision to uh, against God and not to release the Israelites. That was his decision. But God uh, strengthened him because in doing so, God could bring about uh, a, a several objectives that he wanted to use as a, a teaching illustration and as a as a evidence of his own glory. Number one, uh, he, God wanted to demonstrate uh, that Israel should would clearly understand who it was that delivered them. This is seen in Exodus 6, 6 through 7, uh, Exodus 10, 2, Exodus 13, 14, and 15. That it was showing that Israel, so that Israel would clearly understand that this wasn't something that just happened by chance, that this wasn't something that uh, where they were involved and it was something that they made possible. It wasn't something that uh, uh, that that just happened by chance, but that God uh, wrought a brought about a tremendous miracle. Uh, they needed to understand that it was God and God alone who delivered them from slavery in Egypt. The second reason God did it this way is because it brought about a spoiling of the Egyptians. They had been slaves for almost 400 years. And so what happens when they, they find, the Egyptians finally release them, the Egyptians want, want them to, want to give them all of their treasured possessions, gold and silver and jewels, and give them all of this. And it was payback, uh, essentially, for all the years of their labor. And so this, all of this wealth that was transferred to the Jews would help sustain them and establish them uh, in the future, but it would also provide for uh, the all of the, the the gold and the silver and the jewels and everything needed for the for the tabernacle. Third, God did it in this way in order to uh, demonstrate who He was to the Egyptians. He wanted to demonstrate his omnipotence. He wanted to show that the Egyptian uh, system of idolatry was completely false and that God was superior to all of the gods and goddesses uh, in the Egyptian pantheon. Uh, this is seen in Exodus chapter 7, verses 3 through 4, uh, Exodus 11, 9, 
Exodus 14.4 and Exodus uh, 14.17 through 18. Okay, so uh, the first reason was that Israel would clearly understand that God was the one who delivered them in Exodus 6, 6 and 7, Exodus 10, 2, Exodus 13, 14 and 15, and make sure you got those passages. Second, uh, that they would have uh, these valuable possessions to take away from Egypt in Exodus 3, 21 and 22, and that God would multiply his signs and bring them uh, that God would demonstrate who he was, his power and his ability uh, to the Egyptians, and that fourth, that his name would be declared not that God's name would be declared not only in Egypt but also in the whole earth. That this would be a testimony, and and it was. Remember later on when we get to Joshua, and the two spies go into Jericho, and uh, they are hidden by Rahab because Rahab has heard all of the stories about the Exodus and how God brought the Jews out of Egypt. And that testimony of what God did had spread all throughout the world. And so his reputation impacted the whole, the whole world. So the conclusion is in this that, therefore, God has mercy on whom he wills. That was the illustration from Moses. And whom he wills, he hardens. That's Pharaoh. So God is doing this in relation to his plan and purpose for Israel. The word for harden, translated uh, harden in, in Romans 9.18, is just a word that either means to be hardened or to make stubborn or obstinate. So he's just intensifying that which was already already there. So now Paul goes to the objector. Let's go back to Romans 9. Paul goes back to the objector because he knows this sounds like this is just an arbitrary God, but how in the world can can God do this? So he says, indeed, O man, who are you to reply against God? And, And he's talking, remember, about God's purposes for Israel in history. Who are you to reply against God? Will the thing formed say to him who formed it, why have you made me Why have you made me like this? Does not the potter have power over the clay from the same lump to make one vessel for honor and another for dishonor? And this is in in verse 21. This is a quote or an allusion to the Old Testament in Jeremiah 18.8. And this has to do, again, if you go back and you look at the Jeremiah passage, this has to do with God's shaping the nation's destiny. It does not have to do with individual volition in relation to individual salvation. And so he's, he uses the illustration in Jeremiah 18 about the potter shaping the clay, that the potter has the right, as God has the authority over creation, to set his plan and purposes in motion and to select one nation for one purpose and another nation for another purpose, just as the potter has the right to shape his a lump of clay for one purpose or another. And so he then raises the question in verse 22, what if God, wanting to show his wrath and to make his power known, endured with much long suffering the vessels of wrath prepared for destruction? See, the endurance with much patience or long suffering indicates that God is giving them time individually to respond 
to the nonverbal revelation, the general revelation in creation, whatever special revelation they might have, uh, even though they might be within a nation that is doomed to judgment. And that ultimately all of this is designed for God to make known the riches of his glory on the vessels of mercy which he had prepared beforehand for glory. So the vessels of mercy, here he's again not talking about individuals or salvation. He's talking about God's plan now shifting from Israel to the Gentiles in terms of the church. And he says in verse 24, Even us whom he called, not of the Jews only, but also of the Gentiles. Now, who are the called? Well, that takes us back to our study from Romans 8 uh, 28, we know that all things work together for good to those who love God, to those who are the called according to his purpose. This is a term that was used to refer to those who had responded to the gospel uh, message, who had believed on Christ. And so those who had believed on Christ, not of the Jews, but also of the Gentiles, he's talking about how God is bringing them together to form a new people of God, not to replace Israel, but because Israel had rejected their uh, their Messiah. Now, at this point, we get into two, uh, a couple of different verses in uh, Hosea, uh, in verses 25 and 26, uh, two different verses from Hosea, Hosea 2.23 and Hosea 1.10, and then starting in verses 27, and 28, we have uh, quotations from Isaiah 10 and Isaiah 28. And this, I want to get back and get into the original context of both of these passages. And I want to wait until next time. I kind of went through that material tonight on the hardening of the heart a little faster than I thought I would. And I want to wait and get into these passages and deal with them uh, next week when we can take some time and go back and investigate uh, those individual passages. So this might be a good time to see if anybody has a question on this wonderful doctrine of the hardening of Pharaoh's heart. Well, that must have been very clear. Everybody's confused. Okay. So, okay, Tinker. I guess the implication or the follow-up is that at any time Pharaoh could have changed his mind. Yeah, he could have. I relent or I well, that's why God strengthens him, because he's already made his decision. He's already set his heart in, in, in a negative volition. And lest he say, you know, you know, I just can't handle this anymore. Okay, go ahead and let him go. God strengthens his heart. God's not making him choose to uh, keep the Jews in slavery, but he that's his decision. He's just encouraging him, strengthening his decision that he's already made so that he doesn't wimp out because God need, God's going to demonstrate his power, his authority. He's got to demonstrate that to the Jews, to the world, everything else. So he's just strengthening uh, uh, Pharaoh to do what he already wants to do. He's not going to let Pharaoh uh, sort of 
wimp out on the whole thing and say, oh, okay, I just give up, you know, even though that's what he wants to do. He wouldn't change his mind. He just, instead of giving up, um, or give, he would just give in without changing his mind. So God's still not, he's not messing with his volition. He's just strengthening his volition to carry out what he originally intended to do. Well, how did he do that? How did I, God do that? I don't know. <laughs> okay. <laughs> That's beyond that, that. That's beyond my ability. God's ways are not my ways, neither are His thoughts my thoughts. But that, which brings up an important passage, because what we often get into in this whole realm is thinking in terms of how does God, infinite God, cause things in a human realm, and how causation works. Cause the whole law of cause and effect. How causation works within creation is not how causation works in terms of God. So that what we're trying to do is take our creaturely understanding of the law of cause and effect and impose that on God who functions differently. His ways are not our ways. How he can cause things is different from what we experience within creation. And so one of the problems that we have is trying to make God's causation of things inside creation function the same way as the laws of causation within creation from our experience. So we just, at some point, we have to say, well, God has established volition and individual responsibility, and and yet he, he overrides things in terms of his plan for history so that in some way that God in his, in the, to me, in the, the greatness of God's sovereignty and the way we look at things is greater than within a Calvinistic system because within a Calvinistic system, everything operates on a direct causation model and God doesn't know all the knowable. What God knows is only what he determines. And so God is, God is not able to allow for the flexibility of human volition within his his creation so that he can still work out his purposes even when uh, the chaos of free will mucks things up. And an illustration of that goes back to the Garden of Eden when God creates all of the kinds and all of the, 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 the in Genesis chapter 1, and all of the animals are, <clears throat> are herbivores, they're all grass eaters, when sin hits the physical, biological world, it changes the physical, biological makeup of of the world. And we now have distortion. We now have uh, animals become carnivores. We have all kinds of chaos that enters into creation. And what that demonstrates is that God is so great and, and powerful in the way he constructed creation that he can still work out those those principles even though, despite the chaos that enters in because of free will. So human free will may really mess things up, but God has built history, built the plan of history to allow for the flexibility and the chaos that comes as a result of human human failure. Can't we just say that the sovereignty of God and the free will of man coexist? Yeah, that's what I said, but you have to explain that further. 
because people ask questions like, how is that? You have to give an illustration because God in his sovereignty allows for that flexibility to take place. So truisms are truisms, but they only go so far in education. Let's close in prayer. Father, thank you for this opportunity to study these things, help us to understand them, to recognize that while you are in control, it is not a control that violates individual volition because in doing that, it would destroy the reality of responsibility and uh, the free will choice on the part of your creatures to worship you and to respond positively to your offer of, of free grace. And, Father, help us to understand the main issue here in these passages has to do with your plan and purposes for Israel and the church in history and not your plan and purposes for individuals' personal salvation or justification. And we pray that as we think about these things more and more that we can come to a greater understanding of of, uh, what they mean. We pray this in Christ's name. Amen.